CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit cua.org. Good evening. Uh, welcome to this uh, CUA Allies of ESMO 2021. Uh, so again, this year, uh, ESMO that was uh, just in virtual, uh, but was still very interesting in terms of its content. Um, so we have three... So I'm Denis Soulier. I will be the moderator for tonight, at least part of the evening. I'm from the University of Montreal, and my disclosure are noted at the uh, bottom of the slide here. This is the agenda. So we'll cover kidney cancer and a bit more than kidney cancer, you'll see along the way. Um, the second portion will be on bladder cancer, and the third port portion will be on prostate cancer. Uh, there will be a Q&A sessions after uh, each of the groups. So after the kidney cancer presentation, there will be a 10 minute uh, time for questions and answers. Uh, same thing after bladder and after prostate. And for those who do require there is translation that is simultaneous in French uh, that, will, uh, that is available. And you just have to, to press on the translation button at the end of your, uh, at the bottom of your slide. This is an accredited uh, activity. Um, it's a section one activity. Uh, you can claim as much as two hours of credit uh, based on the time that you spend uh, with us during this presentation. These are the, the disclosures in terms of the commercial support for this activity. Uh, you can see that we have uh, gold sponsors as well as silver, silver sponsors. And we do thank them uh, that they gave this money without regard for the content of the presentations tonight. So the learning objectives uh, so that the, by the end of the programs, you will be able to know much of the elements that are important in terms of the review for kidney, bladder, and prostate cancer uh, for most of the data that was presented at ESMO uh, about a week ago. Uh, you could discuss, therefore, new development aimed at improving patient care and to engage in discussion with leading exper experts and peers uh, if we do have time and if our uh, presenters do stick to their time. So we'll go on with the first uh, session, uh, which is on kidney cancer and a bit more than kidney cancer uh, at the end. Uh, our first, our three presenters will be uh, Dr. Michael Leverage, uh, who is uh, an associate professor at Queen's University and also notably the editor-in-chief of CUAJ. Uh, Dr. Mariam Soleimani, uh, who is a medical oncologist at BC Cancer Vancouver Center. And Dr. Uh, Himu Luka, who is uh, also professor at the Department of Oncology at McMaster University. So I'll leave it up to Dr. Leverage to start discussing uh, the highlights of ESMO for kidney cancer. Thank you very much, uh, Denny, and thank you to the CUA uh, for uh, one, availing me of the, uh, of the ESMO uh, program, and two, for the invitation to be here. Um, uh, great to see some friends new and, uh, and old on the, uh, on the menu tonight. I will head uh, right in. Um, Disclosure-wise, uh, I have none for to really today other than I was a moderator of a speaker session uh, here in Kingston uh, related to kidney cancer. I have a couple of prostate uh, uh, things uh, in the past with AbbVie uh, uh, and uh, Bear. my apologies. I looked for the surgical uh, things this time around, and there were really sort of five. There were two about um, uh, about people with pre uh, previous nephrectomy, and I, I punted on them and looked at a couple of things with cytoreductive nephrectomy which of course has been one of the great uh, seismic shifts in advanced renal cell carcinoma in the last few years. 
as well as looking at uh, a study, uh, some quality of life results from a, uh, an otherwise very uh, well-known study published this year in the New England Journal. But we'll start here with the CABO-PRE uh, study of cabozantinib in uh, prior to cytoreductive uh, nephrectomy and metastatic RCC. Uh, this is to, to show you that I looked at the thing. Uh, there's a heat map on there and heat maps are gonna heat map, but I won't be talking about miRNA expression uh, today. Today's really about the patients who went uh, through this. This is a Spanish study of 18 patients who were treated with an intent uh, to cytoreductive nephrectomy with metastatic disease with cabozantinib, uh, the three cycles. Cabozantinib appears in our uh, uh, KCRNC uh, uh, consensus statement as a combination with the nivolumab in first-line uh, therapy uh, in any group. Uh, and an intermediate risk uh, group as a potential for first-line therapy. So it is relevant in this population. Uh, two of the patients were deemed, quote, not evaluable and, uh, and not elaborated upon, but 11 of them, which is 70%, made it to the cytoreductive nephrectomy. So we've got a small group, no subgroup analyses in here. The primary outcome was actually not how they did on their nephrectomies. The primary outcome was whether they had a response rate at 12 weeks, which was before uh, the uh, nephrectomy. And the response rates uh, and the survival curves for this small cohort of uh, people are presented here. This is all comers, not the nephrectomy group uh, alone. 26.7 was their entire uh, response uh, rate, which is about a quarter. To put that in uh, perspective of something like Carmina, which was 29%, it's not terribly far off. And the progression-free survivals... Um, uh, at uh, uh, median um, uh, were, uh, well, the 12 month rather progression-free survival was 37 uh, per, uh, percent in the sunitinib and 30% uh, in the cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, group. This group's a little bit more like the deferred treatment arm of, of SIRTIME. So when you're looking at uh, 12 month uh, progression-free uh, survival, uh, it was actually, uh, uh, overall survival was 70%, progression-free 45%, compares actually quite favorably to this group. So a very small numbers, don't take much from it, uh, uh, but to say that uh, whereas our previous big trials in, um, in cytoreductive nephrectomy are sunitinib heavy and the cabozantinib group, at least in this early signal, we're seeing similar things. Uh, and their final line was that it's a feasible first line treatment for metastatic RCC. We knew that already. And it may enable selection in that 70% were able to go through with that nephrectomy. Bit of a larger study here talking about a uh, I won't say a forgotten group, but a group that we, uh, you know, we fear uh, when we see these pathology results of sarcomatoid and rhabdoid differentiation, almost sort of a, a grade four plus uh, uh, nasty actor. And these are patients who had uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors of any type um, uh, for metastatic sarcomatoid and rhabdoid cancer at the MD Anderson uh, uh, Cancer Center in uh, Houston. Now, there were 91 patients here who had uh, tissue. So there's a couple of biases we have to own right here. Uh, they had tissue. So somebody must have had uh, going to pursue this with perhaps a view to selecting the, um, selecting the immunotherapy. And the 62 patients or two-thirds who went for cytoreductive nephrectomy are fit with the usual selection bias that will occur. And uh, in fairness, 91 is not such a bad number when we compare the reams and reams of uh, uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy in the cytokine era talks that we, uh, and, and studies that we read through from 2007 up until uh, Carmina and, uh, and Sirtime. Um, they used as their outcomes, the time on immunotherapy, which is sort of a surrogate for their ongoing effect, or perhaps a, you know, non-futility in this case, as well as the, uh, the overall survival. 
And when we look at the numbers that they have here, we see the curves separating pretty robustly and pretty early on. Uh, the overall survival curves have, uh, uh, have separated uh, nicely, uh, and we're seeing some significant changes in median survival, as well as the time on uh, uh, ICI, not the ICI you're thinking of, uh, but immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so for these nephrectomy patients, the median overall survival is 29 months versus 14 months. And if you went back and looked at all of these circumstantial and, and case series and IMDC uh, uh, series, um, you would find routinely about 20 months uh, of overall survival in nephrectomized groups and about 10 months in the uh, non-nephrectomy groups. So these numbers are pretty uh, reasonable, especially in these people with nasty, nasty uh, histology. Also significant uh, results with the time on IO, again, as a surrogate for their, uh, uh, for their, uh, their utility. And their final results here suggested that, uh, that uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, is associated with an improved outcome in patients with sarcomatoid and rhabdoid RCC and should be considered in select uh, patients. Again, feels like it fits with what we, uh, what we knew before. Now the main, uh, the main uh, surgical player here, and this is a follow-up of something at uh, ASCO, follow-up of something from the New England Journal earlier in this year. And this is the big keynote 564 uh, study of adjuvant pembrolizumab and high-risk uh, post-nephrectomy or metastasectomy renal cell carcinoma. To recap, this was an adjuvant study of a select group of high risk of recurrence patients after uh, NED removal of their disease. I say that because a small number of them had metastatic disease resected. Um, and on the other end of things, there's some complaints really around S-Track and Assure and some of the others that there was a pollution of T2 uh, players here. But these T2 players, A, were selected for their nasty histology and B, actually uh, don't play much of a role uh, in uh, dragging down any uh, means here. Uh, as we move through, this 500 patients each. Follow-up is only 24 months, so you're not going to get a big off, uh, OS signal in this case there. Power for events leading to OS, I think, according to a podcast of Tony Shuari himself, still requires another 50 or 60 uh, events in order to be uh, uh, to be readable for overall survival. So stay tuned for probably a few years from now. They use disease-free survival per investigator. Uh, yellow flags perhaps going up in some minds uh, about the approval of sunitinib based on S-Track, uh, which was the DNA helix in the overall survival, but separated by 12 months in the progression-free survival. Here's the top line results as a reminder. They did not reach a median progression-free survival, but boy, we're dealing with a dangerous cohort of patients. Uh, these patients were enriched uh, up to 32% uh, or a third recurring within two years. And you'll have a little drift downward as we go east on these uh, uh, curves as well. So these are bad actors uh, and the drug seemed to work. From the quality of life perspective, they use two QOL measures, both validated in renal cell carcinoma. Uh, first is the functional assessment of cancer therapy, kidney cancer symptom index, dash disease-related symptoms. You can see in pink uh, what these things are, are covering for. Energy, fevers, weight loss, bone pain, hematuria. These are advanced cancer uh, symptoms, uh, to give you a hint. The long-standing EORTC QLQC30 is a bit more of a broad one. It's boosted up to 100 points with a 10-point significant uh, difference, and it covers a lot of similar things, including social, overall, uh, and GI symptoms. These are really things about life with advanced cancer. As you'll see from the, uh, uh, the, the functional study, uh, at baseline to 52 weeks, which is 
two and a half weeks after stopping their last uh, uh, cycle, uh, there really is no difference whatsoever and no significant change to the three level in that. And sure enough, the numbers bear that out. These are widely overlapping. Uh, uh, these scores are actually quite high. Remember, it is out of uh, 36 to begin with. These patients are doing well. And there's no dips or bumps uh, or moments in times where things seem to go sideways for these patients. Incidentally, they were followed after leaving the study for recurrence or, or any other uh, uh, reason they left. Uh, in the EORTC QLQC30, similarly, you can see as well as I can see, the green lines for pembrolizumab are a bit worse numerically than the purple lines for placebo, but the numbers again are good to start and they're overlapping uh, all over the place. Uh, and there again, there are no bumps and dips. So how do we reconcile this with some data from the appendix and from the trial? These are uh, adverse effects happening in more than 10% of patients in either group. Uh, and you see significant things with the thyroid, both up and down, with itches, rash, nausea, cough, fatigue, all of these things significantly in favor of the placebo group and happening worse in the, uh, in the Pembro group, but no quality of life difference. Uh, in the pembrolizumab groups, certainly, uh, or surely again, uh, double the rate of grade three complications uh, and way more attributable to the treatment, 19 versus 1% attributable to the treatment, discontinuation of 10 times more in one fifth of patients. And again, the run through of the expected side effects, the classic IO ones, pneumonitis 2, adrenal 2, type 1 diabetes in 1.8% of patients. So the following are two true statements based on these trial results. There are no meaningful differences in the health-related quality of light as measured, and they were stable through time. A third of patients on pembrolizumab had a grade three adverse event. One-fifth of them uh, uh, left their treatment. So how do we reconcile these two sort of things? What does shared decision-making mean, as I heard the, the authors uh, speak on a podcast? Which line should I use to a patient? Uh, uh, your quality of life and physical function are the same, whether you get the drug or not or one in five people I treat you with a drug are gonna to have to stop this. They're both true. I felt a little biased as a surgeon thinking I must be, uh, must be uh, off when I'm uh, saying this and showing my surgical bias, but indeed Brian Reaney, another author uh, of many of these trials mentioned uh, in a, uh, uh, a talk at the uh, ESMO that these really are group cancer sickness QOL measures, not so much attuned to the individual. So these both are true. And it really does scream that the fact that we're looking for biomarkers in these uh, settings, uh, we don't have a good way of predicting who's going to recur. And when two thirds of patients don't recur, uh, we find ourselves in a pickle uh, as surgeons who are part of the first referral base uh, and as medical oncologists to say, how do we reconcile the two of these? This is individualized therapy. Uh, we lose the data here. and We have to focus on our ability to gauge these patients' willingness and ability to withstand these treatments. My thanks for your time. Thank you. Uh, we'll then move on to our second speaker. Uh, Dr. Mariam Soleimani, who's from uh, uh, BC Cancer Agency Vancouver Centre. So I'll let you discuss other elements out of ASCO for kidney cancer. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, and I thank the organizers for the invitation. These are my disclosures. So I'm going to be discussing two abstracts. Um, there wasn't very much that was particularly profoundly practice changing in RCC from ESMO, but there were certainly a lot of thought provoking abstracts. 
So I'm going to present the bonsai trial in collecting duct renal cell carcinoma and then the STAR trial evaluating temporary cessation of TKI versus continuous treatment. So the bonsai trial was a phase two prospective study of frontline cabozantinum for metastatic collecting duct uh, RCC. And collecting duct RCC, as we know, is a really difficult uh, disease state, poor prognosis, and there are tremendous um, areas where we have a positive data to guide our decision making. Diagnosis can sometimes be a bit unclear. We don't really have robust standard therapeutic protocols, um, and there can be a lot of heterogeneity in some of the molecular characteristics of these tumors. And this Italian group has done some really interesting work um, in characterizing the molecular profiles of collecting duct carcinomas. And they've been able to identify unique subgroups which have more angiogenic, metabolic, and immune-related signatures. And um, this is something really interesting. And some of that work sort of um, uh, led them to the design of this study in which untreated metastatic CDC which was centrally pathologically reviewed um, using a Simon two-stage design. Patients, randomized, or patients received cabozantin at 60 milligrams daily until disease progression. The primary endpoint was objective response rate uh, per resist 1.1. And I think what is particularly interesting are some of these exploratory objectives, which we'll talk about. So they had 23 patients in the study, and I think that's a really fantastic number for a rare disease site. Um, the objective response rate was 35%. 48% uh, of patients had progression of disease, and at a median follow-up of eight months, median progression-free survival was six months. So 35% is actually really quite excellent compared to sort of our standard treatments that we currently use uh, with chemotherapy and such where response rates are really in the range of maybe 10 to 15%. Safety profile is really, those of us who use cabozantinib frequently in the RCC world are familiar with this um, and it's a pretty acceptable uh, toxicity profile. These exploratory objectives are where I think this is a really interesting um, and fantastic study, and the authors really deserve to be congratulated for this. They did DNA sequencing on 91% of these patients, and they were able to identify frequencies of mutations that related to deubiquitination, cell-cell communication, and TGF-beta signaling. And looking at the types of mutations that they found in some of these signatures, um, they are essentially moving on to the next phase of studying. So what they said was, you know, bonsai met its primary endpoint, which showed promising efficacy and tolerability of cabozantinib, and I would agree with that. And they're hoping to present sort of mature results from the mutational profiles at a later meeting. And they're also doing some work looking at sort of the tumor um, immune response as well, which will be really interesting. They're now moving on to the Cicerone study, which is a, a study where the primary endpoint is to create a biobank and then allow sort of the results of transcriptomic and genomic profiling from 100 patients to allocate treatment based on four signatures and then to assess treatment. Um, and I think this is really valuable. And when we look at this as a whole disease state, this is a really challenging study to carry out because of the rarity of it. So um, I, I really uh, admire them for doing the study. And I think that in these rare disease states, and we see this in other tumor sites like sarcomas, for instance, 
informing biology better and understanding some molecular stratification can help us to better design clinical trials that have good biological rationale and hopefully improve on our treatments, which unfortunately in this disease state are not great right now. So I'm very much looking forward to further translational work from this group. I think it'll be really interesting. So the second paper I'm presenting is the STAR study presented by Janet Brown. This is a randomized multi-stage phase two, three study looking at um, standard first-line TKI, comparing temporary cessation with continuous treatment. So this study was initially designed in 2012 in the era where TKIs were our standard first-line treatment. And of course, that has changed over time and I'll address that uh, later. Really, what they were trying to look at is TKIs are toxic financially to the healthcare system and also in terms of their toxicity profiles for patients. Can intermittent therapy, rather, that, rather than the conventional continuous therapy, improve on toxicity, um, save money for the healthcare system, and not compromise efficacy? So these results are from the phase three uh, component of the study. And this was done throughout the UK. Um, so this is the trial schema. I won't spend too much time on it other than to say um, patients, all patients receive 24 weeks of treatment. So for sunitinib, four weeks on, two weeks off, and for pizopinib, six weeks continuous. And they then went on to have um, a radiographic assessment. If there was evidence of response, those in the control arm went on to continuous treatment, and those in the interventional arm had a treatment break. And there was 12 weekly radiologic assessment. And when there was evidence of disease progression per resist 1.1, treatment was restarted in the interventional group. The co-primary endpoints were overall survival and quality adjusted life years. And it, they had pre-specified that both the ITT population and the per protocol analyses had to show non-inferiority. So they had 919 patients in the ITT population. Um, you can see there's a, a reasonable number of fair, uh, favorable risk patients um, represented, but on the whole, I think it's a pretty uh, accurate representation of what we would typically see in day-to-day -day practice. So the total number of treatment cycles was pretty similar between the continuous treatment and the um, intermittent treatment, AKA DFIS. Most patients had one break and the average, the median length of the treatment break was about 12 and a half weeks, but there were about 42% of patients who had more than one break. So in the overall survival analysis, I think their statistical design kind of um, became a bit of a challenge for them because recall that they had to have shown um, that both in the ITT population and the per protocol, um, uh, they had to show non-inferiority. And you can see in the ITT population that um, that certainly was met, but not in the per protocol uh, analysis. But if you look at the survival curves, I think it's really hard to argue um, anything other than these curves are essentially the same for both groups. And so I think that we can say um, from a practical point of view, overall survival was not impacted, but if you're a real statistical purist, then you know, one could argue that it did not meet that endpoint of showing non-inferiority. 
In terms of quality adjusted life years, they did show non-inferiority. And uh, Dr. Brown also um, commented on the fact that cost effectiveness analysis has shown that an intermittent strategy is associated with cost savings, which is certainly not anything surprising. Less uh, treatment, less toxicity, less utilization of healthcare resources to manage those toxicities. The secondary endpoint was time to event, which was um, time to st strategy failure and also summative progression-free survival. And you can see that the intermittent treatment uh, resulted in a significant difference in, in favor um, of intermittent treatment for, for that endpoint. Safety-wise, not surprising. If you're on intermittent treatment, you're less likely to have serious adverse events. And Dr. Brown also mentioned that time to dose reduction was later in the DFIS arm, that intermittent arm. So patients were actually able to stay on the full dose of sunitinib or pazopinib for longer. And so the conclusion of the authors was that treatment breaks are acceptable for patients and clinicians. They're not detrimental to overall survival or quality of life and have significant cost savings. And I think that is very much accurate and I would agree with that. Um, one thing that I'm curious about, and I hope that they will present at a future meeting, is um, they did collect this data from the phase two portion of the study, is what was actually happening to tumor burden during that time off treatment during those breaks and the trajectory of growth, because it can be very heterogeneous within this group. And it would be very interesting to see, was, it, was the majority of it very indolent growth? Was there a difference based on sites of uh, metastases, which I expect there would be? So that will be very interesting to see. And this really builds on work that's previously been done. Um, and, you know, Dr. Bjornsson um, and many of you who are on this session um, were involved in this study. You know, in this study, which I think really um, for us in Canada informed practically how we do this, uh, this study looked at toxicity as sort of your or your target for modification of individualized scheduling as opposed to progression as being the trigger by which um, uh, treatment decisions were made. And I think that is a bit of a better strategy to take. And um, Moshi, Ornstein and colleagues have also looked at a very similar study with Sunatina previously as well. So it's kind of building on that. So my take is that I think TKI treatment breaks are acceptable and maintain efficacy. I think it's important to really look at this on an individual level, evaluating the sites of disease, you know, patients that have bony metastases or liver metastases, you may want to be a little bit more cautious, but I don't think that is to say they should not go on breaks to manage toxicity. It just needs to be monitored more carefully. I think it's important to look at the specific agent and its half-life. So cabozantinib, for instance, has a much longer half-life. So the break may need to be a bit longer versus sunitinib, which has a much shorter half-life. And the impact of the toxicity of concern, by which I mean, what is the toxicity that's the issue? Is it severe diarrhea, which causes the patient to not be able to leave their house, um, you know, mid-cycle because they have such bad diarrhea? Is it um, hand-foot syndrome that, you know, they can walk for an hour before their feet start to get sore? And so you have to really look at it on an individual level. And I think we have to measure the impact of modifying and individualizing therapy individually as well. Individual quality of life in this sort of setting is a lot more relevant than collective. Um, and uh, patients will often tell you, you know, they feel really, really good when they take a break off their TKI. 
And I think that you have to monitor very closely with interval imaging. And I personally would not wait for progression to resume the TKI in most cases. I think um, kind of modifying based on when a toxicity settles down to less than grade two or what is tolerable for patients and then resuming is a good strategy. And of course, this study was designed at a time when TKIs were a standard treatment, but I think it applies to our current practice where by most of our patients are now on IOIO or IOTKI. Um, and certainly in my practice, I do individualize uh, dose scheduling for axitinib with, with patients on pembroaxi and on TKIs in second and later lines of treatment. So I think um, it is uh, applicable in our current um, uh, treatment algorithm as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. So we'll move on to our uh, third speaker for this session. So Dr. Uh, Himuluka, who will uh, also discuss some elements of uh, kidney cancer, but also testicular cancer. So Himu, it's, it's your time. Great, thank you. Um, I was slated to do the radiotherapy part for kidney cancer and bladder cancer, but there wasn't much on in the bladder cancer front. So I let the other two speakers take on a bit more time. I will stick around for the Q&A for the bladder, just if there are any questions. Now, as far as kidney was concerned, there weren't any specific papers related to radiotherapy and kidney cancer. However, what uh, I was able to find is in one of the case presentations, uh, there was reference to a number of concepts in managing uh, uh, kidney cancer with radiotherapy. Um, so the, the comment was made that while nephrectomy is a standard of care in treating uh, renal cell carcinoma, for those that are not eligible, there are other options available by way of cryotherapy, uh, RF ablation, uh, or stereotactic radiotherapy. Uh, in many ways, uh, for a long, long time, RCC was thought to be one of the most radio-resistant cell lines, but this is being re-evaluated with SBRT techniques where the dose per fraction is much higher and the treatment is given over five treatments. So the, there is a meta-analysis that's been done, that's been published in one of the European journals. And it really shows that the one-year local control rate is just under 90% with good one-year survival. Now that's one-year results, so I don't want to overplay this. However, uh, there is actually a Canadian database that is in place uh, and Will from Sunnybrook and Anand from my own institution uh, I have been given the charge by Gurok to, to actually collect data across Canada, and that's going to be plowed into an international database. And there's a bit longer, longer follow-up, but the results hold up. So it certainly is encouraging and something to consider uh, for patients who, who, where uh, surgery is not an option. The, there are three other situations that were referred to, obviously, to treat the primary uh, where there are symptoms and the patient is not a candidate for nephrectomy, uh, SBRT uh, uh, presents a good option. Similarly, uh, seriotactic radiotherapy is useful in the metastatic uh, setting as well. The other concept that was raised, there wasn't all that much good quality data presented, but in the event that you've got oligoprogression on the TKIs, 
the sites which, which demonstrate oligoprogression can be treated with SVRT techniques, and that enables the TKIs to have prolonged efficacy for uh, prolongation from 14 months to 22 months. Again, not high quality data, but certainly something to consider uh, before a switch in systemic therapy. The more interesting uh, issue relates to immunomodulation uh, with the use of SPRT and the new immunoagents that are available. Um, the rapport study, which was presented at ASCO-GU earlier this year, where clear cell uh, RCC phase one, two study in the oligometastatic setting, patients were, were allowed to have up to two lines of prior systemic therapy, uh, uh, received SBRT to each of the uh, up to five sites and six months of Pembro. There were 30 patients that were accrued. Um, now, the rapport study was compared to Keynote 427, and, uh, and uh, as people are aware, these were in patients that had not received previous systemic therapy. The suggestion was the medium PFS uh, in the RAPOR study, and remember these were pre uh, received up to two cycles of systemic therapy. The medium PFS was uh, 15.6 months in comparison to 7.1 in the keynote 4 to 7 study. So a suggestion that maybe there is uh, uh, an improvement, but remember this is cross-study comparison. A lot of uh, caveats need to be attached to that. So a low quality uh, study, but certainly something to, to, to be further investigated. The, the, as part of the presentation, they actually referred to the cytoshrink study. And this is a, a, a study which is being led by Ali Khan Lalani and Anand Swaminath from my own institution. And again, this was mentioned as part of the presentation. This is in biopsy-proven, untreated metastatic uh, RCC in the intermediate or poor category. And the randomization is to uh, ipinivo versus ipinivo with SBRT to the primary. The primary uh, outcome is a PFS outcome. And I would encourage people to get in touch with the PI or the co-PI, because I think this is slated to be a very interesting study from an immunomodulation perspective and looking at the upscopal effect. Turning now to the TESTI study, there was a, a phase two study presented by the Swiss group and German group. It's looking at single dose carbo followed by involved uh, field radiotherapy in the management of stage 2A and 2B seminoma. Uh, patients, as you know, uh, are outside the study, the normal treatment is either uh, multi-agent chemotherapy involving BEP or EP or uh, dogleg radiotherapy. Um, using either of those two approaches, the uh, the results are pretty good, uh, around the 90% PFS uh, 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 level, and that obviously is pretty good. However, the patterns of relapse suggest that where chemotherapy is utilized, the main relapses are in the retroperitoneal region, 
And where radiotherapy is used, it is mainly outside the radiotherapy treated area. So in many ways, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the idea that they had came up with, uh, which I'll go into in a couple of, uh, in a bit more detail, but specifically the concern as we know with both the radiotherapy and chemotherapy is the risk of second malignancies. So the question is by using this strategy, uh, uh, are they able to uh, produce local and distant disease control, but avoid the toxicity of chemotherapy and larger volume radiotherapy? At the same time, what they said was you're still maintaining the standard salvage treatment options if there is risk recurrence despite that. So the primary endpoint was PFS. Uh, the target was three-year PFS a level of around 95%, 120 patients needed. The secondary endpoints that are identified here, uh, including the uh, sites of relapse and second malignancies. Um, the uh, chemotherapy was single agent carboplatinum with an AUC of seven and involved field radiotherapy to 30 gray. And as you can see here, the results of three-year PFS was 93.7%, uh, a bit lower than what they were hoping for. One death as far as overall survival, and that was from a second malignancy. But that second malignancy was well outside the radiotherapy field, so it may not be related to the treatment itself. Toxicity was really at the low end of the spectrum, mainly grade one or grade two toxicity where it occurred. Um, these are the details of the treatment delivery. Um, the uh, radiotherapy was a much smaller volume shown there compared to the standard dogleg technique. In summary, they felt that the, uh, the treatment was reasonably well tolerated and reasonably good results. And so far, the toxicity was quite low. The, there was a discussant with the study, uh, and that was uh, uh, Chris uh, uh, Kormansberger uh, from Vancouver. And he had a number of concerns with regards to study. Specifically, one of the issues was, as far as the follow-up is concerned, it is too short to conclusively assess for efficacy outcomes and long-term toxicity particularly second malignancies. Um, he uh, quoted the uh, cisplatinum results uh, with combination chemotherapy, and the results are pretty good in this particular population. But his concern was that when we look at single agent carboplatinum in the treatment of seminoma, uh, carboplatinum is not as good as the cisplatinum seen that I referred to. So he had concern whether this was going to be an effective uh, uh, treatment longer term. The second uh, concern that he had, uh, uh, which I agree with, is that while the second malignancy risk is, is, is a bit higher, but not unduly so, with each of the separate treatments involving combination chemotherapy or radiotherapy. But when you use a combination, the risk goes up significantly uh, threefold in some cases. So you've got to be very careful about looking at uh, uh, second malignancies before you accept this as a reasonable standard. 
His conclusion was uh, that therapeutic equivalence or non-inferiority has not been demonstrated. There are questions regarding long-term efficacy and toxicity, particularly related to second malignancies and longer follow-up uh, is needed. Uh, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you. <clears throat> so I ask the three speakers to possibly have their camera on uh, and we'll go on with the, uh, the first question. Uh, Mariam, uh, you presented the STAR data. Uh, do you think it's still relevant in this era of immunotherapy? And does it tell us anything about whether or not we should stop immunotherapy or is it completely different when you're discussing immunotherapy and uh, TKIs as to whether or not you should uh, stop therapy and give a holiday? Yeah, I think it is still relevant in the era of IOTKI. Um, I think there is still room to dose modify TKIs. What to do with the immunotherapy um, can sort of vary, and I think there is room for flexibility on that. And we'll probably see some retrospective studies that will try to answer that question a little bit more. Um, I certainly have patients in my practice in whom I've stopped the pembrolizumab for toxicity reasons and continued the TKI, modified the TKI dosing. And I mean, if we think about the mechanism of action of these immunotherapies, they're still, they're still active and immunomodulating in the background. So if, if you had an immune response early in treatment, that response will likely sustain itself and you can continue the TKI after that. So um, yeah, I think it is still relevant in this era. Going to the second question to Michael. Um, you've presented the uh, quality of life data uh, for the adjuvant trial. Um, so it's not necessarily detrimental. It doesn't cause harm. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to cause harm significantly, uh, but still it's lower than what you would have in terms of quality of life for those who just received placebo. Uh, what do you think the quality is going to cost to be able to uh, educate for the value of uh, pembrolizumab uh, adjuvant therapy for a kidney cancer patient? That's an excellent, uh, excellent question. Um, it will, you know, you've got a lot of people who are never going to uh, recur, which is always one of the big uh, questions. And could you save that with, uh, with salvage? Would you need to salvage everyone if you have some proportion of those who recur, who recur in a surgically resectable and, and still uh, sort of curable way, sort of uh, peripheral questions? Um, but in salvaging these people with, uh, you know, with no change in, in quality of life, and I mean, you could probably do the math on the, uh, on the number needed to treat, um, but it absolutely seems like an, a, an extraordinary cost. Perhaps one of the reasons, other than the OS difference, that, the, uh, uh, that we're not seeing sunitinib uh, from uh, S-TRAC being, uh, being widely used in the United States, even though it's uh, FDA approved. Uh, and not Health Canada approved. So I, I think it's going to be a moot thing because I, I don't necessarily anticipate it making its way through the regulatory apparatus, but certainly seems like, uh, uh, like a lot. Uh, and you're going to put a certain number of people uh, in the hospital. QOL is one thing, as we've said, but there are a lot of people who are uh, having secondary uh, treatments for the accumulated uh, uh, harms is the wrong word, the accumulated adverse effects of the, um, uh, of the uh, IO used in this, uh, in this setting. Yeah, it might end up being a question of just not when, uh, if, not, if not early IO, then later IO is whether or not it gives the same advantage in survival. Um, third question maybe on, on uh, 
uh, testis cancer because we did have a little bit of that. Um, in their presentation, the authors uh, proposed that the combination of chemo plus radiation therapy with just involved field and with new ways of giving radiation therapy is probably not as much linked to long-term effects uh, in terms of uh, MDS or acute leukemias. Uh, do you think that is true or whether or not we still have to rely on data that mainly comes from, uh, uh, from Hodgkin's patients who were treated with, uh, with chemo and radiation therapy? Well, the, the, the uh, second malignancy data that was referred to was from the Norwegian data. Uh, and as we know, the Scandinavians have been very meticulous with collecting data. I would still be very cautious about using combined modality treatment and in these groups, unless it's absolutely necessary. So I'd be cautious on that front and I'd like to, to, to see where, uh, where the results pan out. With a modern technique such as VMAT or IMRT, the risks actually go up a bit more because you land up splashing a bit more dose to a wider field. So the risk of second malignancy actually may be higher in that modern technique era as opposed to uh, just with parallel post pair. So I th again, this is something that we'll have to keep our eyes and ears open uh, over time, but these are, this is a younger patient group. So we've got to be very careful about second malignancies. Thank you. Uh, so I guess we'll move on to the second session uh, for bladder cancer. So thank you to my presenters for uh, the kidney and testis session.